All right. We're going to start in Romans. Romans, and we're going to start in chapter 14. I want to read, I'm going to read a lot of stuff out of the mirror translation because I like that it's worded differently and that it'll cause us to think a little bit about what it is because we get so familiar with scripture that it, then it doesn't pierce us the way that it should. And so I want to read out of the mirror. And in Romans 14, 17, it says, God's royal dominion is not based on food and drink regulations, but righteousness, friendship, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Don't you love that? God's royal dominion, right? This is just another way of saying the kingdom of heaven is not about food or drink, but God's royal dominion, which is ours, right? It's ours to steward. God's royal dominion is ours to steward. Say it's mine. Yes, it's mine to steward. His royal dominion is not about food or drink, but about righteousness, peace, and joy. We're talking about reconciliation this morning, and I have like not known exactly where to go with this because we could, we could go super broad, we could get into the very nitty-gritty details of reconciliation. But I felt like God was inviting me to explore reconciling to the masterpiece that is God's royal dominion or the kingdom of heaven. And if it is righteousness, peace, and joy, then I think we might need to know a little bit about righteousness, peace, and joy. If we're supposed to function in the ministry of reconciliation, and we are, say, I am, I am the ministry of reconciliation, we should really kind of have a clue as to what we're reconciling unto. Right? We can, we can walk around saying, well, I'm reconciling people unto Jesus, or I'm reconciling people unto love. But see, those things have Beautiful boundary lines. I love the psalm that David wrote that says, his boundary lines for me have fallen in pleasurable places. We have to know what the confines of the kingdom of heaven are. What are these pleasurable spaces that we're reconciling people unto? Let's look at righteousness. Righteousness simply means likeness. In the simplest terms, it's likeness. Doesn't that make you feel better? I mean, it makes me feel better. I, you know, the word righteousness is thrown around so much in ways that, that feels piercing and weaponized. Do you, have you ever felt that? Do you know what I'm talking about? Or as if it's heavy, right? But if righteousness in its truest form means likeness, wow, what an invitation, right? We're reconciling people unto the likeness of something. The likeness of our father. Do you remember in the beginning? When he created us in the first place, he said, let us make male and female in our image. 
or our likeness. Righteousness simply means to take on the likeness of another. A lot of Christianity is walking around in a false sense of righteousness. We're taking on a false image or a false likeness. We see this from the very beginning when Adam and Eve fell, when they looked into the the image or the likeness of another and took that on as their own likeness. This is where false righteousness came in, right? Or or self-righteousness, right? When we are looking into ourselves to find the answers. See, you guys, there is, there is beauty in all of the different camps that exist today. And I'm not talking about just denominationals. I'm talking about the New Age movement. I'm talking about all of the different things that we would look at and be like, oh, right? No, there is beauty to be found in those things. But the problem is with, we're just going to use New Age because it's in my mind. The problem with it is, is that it is a self-righteousness. They're looking into self to find the answers. Now, if Christ is dwelling richly in you, then this is okay, right? Can we agree there? There's a difference between Christ-centered righteousness and self-righteousness. It depends on what your mirror is. Okay? Are we good? Okay. Peace. What is peace? Is it just taking your picture? Right? Peace is thrown around and we think we know what it means. This was really good for me because righteousness, peace, and joy seem like they should be familiar to me, but I'm all of a sudden going, what the heck is righteousness, peace, and joy? Right? And we know, we know scriptures that talk about peace. The lion will lay with the lamb. The child will play in the cobra's nest. Now, this is next level peace. Right? One day, I was out on one of my walks, like I did, out on the country road between the cornfields. And there was a deer. And she was just out there. She noticed me. I noticed her. And all of a sudden, there was something rising. I'd never been afraid of a deer before in my life. And all of a sudden, these thoughts of harm started rising up in me. And and she was, I could tell, like, she was getting a little worried. We were both having, like, this encounter with fear And where there's fear, there's an absence of peace, right? And Holy Spirit broke into this moment, and he was like, when you are walking in the purity of peace, that will not happen anymore. We think about stories like um, St. Francis of Assisi, who is known to commune with animals. I don't care what you believe, I believe these stories. I believe that he was out in nature, and I believe he heard them. I do. I think that they could understand each other. Same with Adam and Eve. So I don't know why this is so far-fetched for us. 
I think they understood one another. I think they had conversation. I just believe it. Because peace was in the middle of it all. Now, it's really simplistic for us to envision this with the animal kingdom. But the moment that we bring humanity into our picture, with all our varying beliefs, suddenly peace exits the room, even mentally. We can't even, we can't even fathom being in a room with people that don't believe like us. You know what I mean? Peace has to exist between you and I first. Or we don't have the fruits of the kingdom of heaven or God's dominion. Right? Because we have to have righteousness, peace, and joy. For there to be a, a real encounter with the kingdom of heaven. So this looks like my being aware of your beliefs that you're bringing into the room and my ability to side with peace, even though I might not fully agree with you. We don't do this well, can we agree? Like, this is something we do not do well. We don't do well at all. We get ticked off just scrolling through social media. Well, I just don't understand why they always never. Right? And if we can't practice it while we're scrolling, we're certainly not going to do it face to face. Am I right? So can we start practicing peace? It doesn't mean agreement with social issues. It means agreement with the kingdom of heaven. You get to exist in my space. I want to learn the expression of Christ that you carry into the room. It means we're siding with Jesus. Yes? Before we choose to disagree, let's side with Jesus, which means I have to have eyes to see. I have to be able to see past whatever it is that you're flaunting, right? Whatever it is, whatever it is that I have intel on, well, they this, right? Before I make a judgment call on what it is that they believe or they buy into or they hold as valuable in their life, I have to agree with Christ in them. This will create peace. Yes? Is this hard? Does it feel inviting? Because if we can't, if we can't get this right, we're not going to be able to experience God's dominion. We're just not. And I want that for us. I want that for us. I want us to be those who are releasing the kingdom of heaven everywhere we go. Practice withholding judgment. You know, not everybody everywhere needs to know what you think. I know. Shocking. Okay. Joy. 
well, it's like a joy. I looked up the biblical definition because I was like, all of a sudden, it's got to be more than just laughter or me feeling good, right? It's got to be more than just a cute little name. Joy. The biblical definition of joy says that joy is a feeling of good pleasure and happiness that is dependent on who Jesus is rather than on who we are or what is happening around us. Joy comes from Holy Spirit abiding abiding in God's presence and from hope in his word. You want me to read it again? The biblical definition of joy says that joy is a feeling of good pleasure and happiness that is dependent on who Jesus is rather than on who we are. It's fruit, right? It's fruit. It's fruit of Holy Spirit, alive and well in you, right? And I want to push this a little bit because we know that that Scripture tells us that it was the joy set before Jesus that he endured the cross. So don't come at me with, I'm grumpy because my life sucks. Because your life doesn't suck to the degree of the cross. It was the joy set before him. See, you have to know what is the joy that is set before you. So when the, the hard things of life come at you, and they will, they will. But how do you turn and face Jesus in those moments where you can see the joy set before you? You have to know what is the pleasure? What is the pleasure evermore that is promised me? Some of us just need to go and read up on on Christian history. And I'm talking like the mystical Christian history of those who have gone before us and endured physical harm to their bodies and experienced nothing. Hmm. Perhaps that's the joy set before us. Brian Simmons just posted yesterday. If you don't know who Brian Simmons is, he's the translator of the Passion Translation. And you should follow him if you don't, because he's phenomenal. You're welcome, Brian. Anyway, <laughs> yesterday he was he posted a story about um, the woman at the well. And there is there is his history on her. It's not just what's in scripture. There is documented history of this woman, and she is one of the greatest evangelists that ever existed. She led many, many to encounter Christ. I hope you understand why I used the language that I just did. She didn't lead many to Christ. She didn't get many saved. She didn't bring people in for butts and seats. She led many to encounter the Christ that she knew. I want you to remember who she is. She's the one who comes to the well to get her water, her sustenance, when no one else is going to be there because of the amount of shame that this woman is carrying around. Jesus, who already sat himself down at the well waiting for her, remember he went out of his way? He went the long way just to meet with her? Jesus was already there waiting for her when nobody else would be there. 
and he tells her everything that she's ever done. And you know what her response is? She runs into the town and she tells everyone everywhere, come meet the man. Come meet the man who told me everything I've ever done wrong. Right? Because she saw her likeness in him. She experienced peace. She was good with him. Her sin didn't matter. The only thing that mattered is that she saw her likeness in him. And she experienced the purity of joy and wanted everyone else to experience what she just did. She led many to encounter Christ the way that she did. She saw beyond the shame story. I would even dare to say she paid no attention to the shame story. She didn't care about their political standing. She didn't care what side of the aisle they were on. She wanted everyone to encounter. As the story goes, she was actually imprisoned by Nero and led his daughter and all of her slave women to an encounter with Christ. It's a phenomenal story. Absolutely phenomenal. And see, that's not because she's special. It's because she saw her likeness, right? She was reconciled unto Christ. She saw her origin in him, and it became the loudest thing in her. We have to turn and face. We can't continue to be the victim at every turn. We have a victim addiction. We love to be the victim. We love it. We love it. What we have to love more is our likeness in him. Jesus is the only human being who has any right to feel like a victim. Yet he didn't. He's the only one that's truly innocent and didn't make a sound. Because of the joy set before him. You have to identify yourself as the joy set before him. Say, I am the joy. Or the joy set before him. All right. Let's find some more evidence. I'm going to go to um, Romans. Um, we're going to read all of Romans 14, actually. No, not all of it. Just the... Go to Romans 14, 1. And we're going to read it. We're going to stay in the mirror. This is so, I love that. I just love this. Can you tell? I love this. You guys, I think so often we wrongly read scripture. You know, many years ago, we were told that if, you know, you're reading scripture and you're seeing the finger wagging at you, like, do better. You're not reading it right. We should be able to find ourselves in scripture. We should be able to delight in what it is that it's saying. Let's read. 
Welcome those who are young in their faith with warm hospitality. Avoid controversial conversation. Oh. Interesting. Avoid controversial conversation. One may feel free to eat anything while another believes one should only eat vegetables. I love that Paul is using food because it's just hilarious to me. It seems like such a menial thing to be bringing food in light of the gospel, but he's proving a point, and it's such a good point. By having faith to eat anything does not qualify you to judge the one who abstains. God doesn't treat the vegetarian any differently. You are in no position to criticize the hospitality of God. He invited both to the same table, and he is well capable to uphold and establish someone who still stumbles and seems weak in faith. Verse 5, one person may see more religious importance in some days, while another values every day the same. Let everyone come to the full conclusion of what the day means in their own understanding. Can't you hear him saying, who cares? Right? Like, who cares? Let's go back to that first line. Avoid controversial conversation. Who cares? His whole point is, could you please bond over your righteousness, over peace, and over joy? Bond over your likeness. Stop complaining about what isn't and start bonding over about what is. Right? Can we get excited about our likeness? Whoever esteems the specific importance of a certain day. Did I read that? Okay, we're in verse 7. No one can live or die in isolation. Our life and death touch others. Neither can our life or death distance us from him. We remain his property. The death Jesus died and his resurrection and the conclusion of his life now in us is the only relevance of life and death. I'm going to read that one again. That was important. The death Jesus died and his resurrection and the conclusion of his life now in us is the only relevance of life and death. The only relevance is what he has done. The cross and resurrection. Where's that resurrection power now? Could you put it on display, please? Verse 10, what qualifies you to be your brother's judge? On what grounds do you condemn your brother? All of us stand in the footprint of Christ. Don't you love that? All of us stand in the footprints, the footprint of Christ. We are equally represented in him. Do you believe that? Do you believe that that's what is true of you? That you are all equally represented in Christ. Verse 11, the prophet recorded what we, what he heard God say, my own life is the guarantee of my conviction, says the Lord. Every knee shall freely bow to me in worship and every tongue shall spontaneously speak from the same God-inspired source. Thus, the logic of God will find its personal expression in every person. 
Don't you love that? Thus, the logic of God will find its personal expression in every person. You guys, here's the deal. We're so afraid of being out of control that we don't allow ourselves to become the living expression of God. We have this urge of, I'm going all in. But then we are so afraid when we take that first step and we're like, I don't know what this is going to look like. What if, what if I, what if I look crazy? What if this Christ putting me on display looks wacko? What if it looks like I'm completely out of control and people judge me? Let me just ask you this. Who is in the likeness of the father in that moment? The one who is out of control or the one who is judging? I don't get to decide what righteousness looks like in you. That has to be the true, authentic expression of Holy Spirit breaking out of you. And I do want you to understand that I think it is kind of a violent act. It is. It's somewhat of a violent act where you become the living expression. But here's the deal. Every time one of us steps out and becomes the living expression, everything changes. Everything changes. When you lay hold of what it is that he is wanting to say as you, everything changes. You're making way for something new to be experienced. The kingdom of heaven is trapped inside of us as long as we're trying to live this subdued <gasps> little me life. I know some of you, and I know the callings on your life. And you're letting fear have all the fun. I just want to give you permission. Allow yourself to be broke open. Who cares what it looks like? It might even be messy, but who cares? We, we have gotten into this mindset of professional Christianity, and that is absolutely disgusting. Can we make that agreement? Yes! Professional Christianity is gross. If it, if it doesn't err on the side of, I risked it, I fell down, but I'm going to get back up. Without the entirety of the church jumping on and condemning that person, then it's not righteousness, peace, or joy. We need to decide. We need to predetermine what does it look like for me to be broke open, risk it all, put myself out here as a living expression, and maybe I miss it a little bit. Can we predetermine what our response is going to be like, be like in that moment? I th think I talked about this on Friday. I had this encounter with someone's child, and they were just learning to walk. And, and 
it hit me. And I mean, I've raised my own kids and have nieces and nephews and, and all of that. And so I've watched this a hundred times, but it hit me in this moment as he began to take his first steps and everyone in the room celebrated even when he fell down. It was boom, boom. You did such a good job. How is it that you think our father is reacting when we risk it all and we begin to toddle? Even if we trip. Uproarious applause. All of heaven goes wild. All of heaven. See, we have gotten so stuck in this professional Christianity that we have missed the kingdom of heaven completely. I honestly, this is my honest feeling, that most, more churches, I'm going to say it this way, more churches feel like a prison than they do the kingdom of heaven. We bring people in and keep them trapped right? Little sheepies trapped in the pen. We never let them out the pasture. That's not what the kingdom of heaven is about. The kingdom of heaven should look like you coming in, me declaring your likeness in Christ, sharing in peace and joy, and then kicking you out. Go do what you do. Go break open everywhere. Yeah? All right. There remains, this is verse 13, there remains no further cause for judging anyone. Rather determine that you will not allow suspicion or prejudice to snare your brother into a trap. I am totally persuaded that in the Lord Jesus, nothing is unclean in itself. It only seems unclean in someone's own religious reasoning. Yeah, wow. I mean, Paul's being crazy here. He's being crazy, right? This is crazy. What? We can't judge each other because your Christianity doesn't look like mine? Our version of Christianity looks like cloning one another. Sound like me, walk like me, dress like me. Get the same hairstyle as me. It's gross. I'm going to read that line again because it was really good. I am totally persuaded that in the Lord Jesus, nothing is unclean in itself. It only seems unclean in someone's own religious reasoning. That's scandalous, you guys. But to walk in love is more important than to feed your appetite with your favorite food. Much rather lose out on a meal than lose a brother. For whom Christ died. I mean, Jesus sacrificed his life. For you to sacrifice a meal is no big deal. He's not advocating for fasting here. Sorry, it's not what he's saying. He's saying that the people before you are a living expression. See it. Before you start judging what they're not, see what they are. Yes? You guys, 
self-righteousness looks like me taking serenity under my wing and making sure that she always comes back to me with every little thing that goes wrong in her life. Return, 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 return. But what it should look like, that's self-righteousness. I'm telling her, take on my image. Become me, serenity. Righteousness, likeness in the kingdom of heaven looks like serenity comes to me and I'm going, I don't know, what is God saying? I don't want to be the answer person. I'm not going to be your personal prophet. You have ears to hear and you have eyes to see. My job is to equip you to make sure that you're hearing his voice for yourself so that you can go break open and be a living expression of Jesus Christ because you are also made in his likeness. I don't want you to come close to me so you can look like me and talk like me. If that's the case, we're missing out on an entire expression of Jesus Christ. Do you know he's multifaceted in character? And if Robin and Jeff become like me, then we're just like single faceted. But if they live as the full expression of who God created them to be when he spoke them into existence, then we get that multifaceted expression in this house. So that the world, so that the world, remember, Jesus is the desire of the nations, right? They actually want him as long as we have a multifaceted expression of who he is. It's when you all look like the single person who's standing on the stage with the microphone that the world was like, good God. Y'all sound alike, y'all look alike, you walk alike, you believe the same things, you're voting in the same direction, I know I'm stepping on toes. That's not our job. Our job is not to persuade and convince one another to do what we do. It's to persuade and convince each other that you were made in the very likeness of God and to live fully, uninhabited as his expression on the earth so that the nations that are desiring Christ can have what it is that they're after. It's not going to happen if we continue to take on each other's personas. It's not. It's not what the nations are desiring. And you exist. You exist to fulfill what it is that the nations are after. Do you believe that? Yes. See, this is, this is where we have to align. We have to believe that we are who he says we are. Oh, let's look at this other scripture. This is really good, you guys. Romans 4. We are all over Romans today, and it's fantastic. Are you loving this? Yes. Am I offending you? No. Darn it. God uses offense. Listen, offense only becomes wrong when it doesn't do its job because Jesus actually called himself the rock of offense. He calls himself the rock of offense. Why does he offend us? to change our minds. He offends us to change our minds and, oh, oh my gosh, he does it through you. <laughs> so when you come at me and I'm like, I don't like the way you're believing. I don't like what you're promoting. 
Maybe there's something in me that he's trying to change, to advance, to stand even further into my Christ-likeness. Yeah? Isn't that fun? You guys, there's no end to exploring this. I just think it's a blast. Anyway, we're going to go to Romans 4. We're going to start in um, verse 16. Therefore, I know it's hard to start it with a therefore because you don't have the background information. Law, faith. Now you have it. Therefore, since faith sponsors the gift of grace, the promise is equally secured for all the children. Don't you love that? Since faith sponsors the gift of grace, the promise is equally secured for all the children. Who's the children? Yes. All. Thank you. Um, the law has no exclusive claim on anyone. The reward system cannot match the gift principle. Love that wording. Faith is our source, and that makes Abraham our father. Verse 17. When God changed Abram's name to Abraham, he made a public statement that he would be the father of all nations. Here we see Abraham faced with God's faith, the kind of faith that resurrects the dead and calls things which are not as though they were. Who is the author and finisher of your faith? Jesus. Jesus. Faith isn't something you conjure up, it's something you take on. I want to read the note on this in the mirror. It says, Note that most of Abram's ancestors were already fathers by the time that they had turned 30 or 35. Yet Terah was 70 years old before he had Abram. His name suggests that Terah acknowledged that he could not claim parenthood of this son. He was fathered from above. Now imagine how nervous Abram was when eventually he was 75 and still without child. That was when God met with him and added to his name the Ha of, of Yahweh's, Jehovah's own name. In Arabic, the word Raham means drizzling and lasting rain. The innumerable drops of water in a drizzling rain are like the stars mentioned in Genesis 15.5. Now imagine those innumerable stars raining down upon the earth, and each one becomes a grain of sand. So shall your seed be. Abraham's identity, his name, was the echo of God's faith and his bold confession in the absence of Isaac. The name change, similar of that of Simon to Rock, reminds man to realize his original identity as son of God, hewn out of the rock. Don't you love that? So every time that Abraham's name is used, from the time that God changes it, is a reminder of his righteousness. Remember, righteousness simply means likeness. Every time Sarah used his name, it is a reminder of his likeness and the promise that is over his life. That you will be the father of many. 
many grains of sand. I don't know the last time you went to a beach and tried to count the grains of sand. I was, I was planting seeds yesterday. And, you know, if you've done any kind of gardening from seed, you know that some of the seeds are so teeny tiny that it's hard to just, like, grab hold of one. And it, grains of sand, especially on real beaches, <laughs> maybe not out at Milford. <laughs> huh? It's real. I'm talking about, I mean, it's so much more fine on the coastlines than it is in our man-made lakes, right? And, um, like, I can't imagine trying to count each grain of sand. So my big question is, what is it that God has said of you? God changed Abram's name to Abraham so it would be a constant reminder of his calling. He had never been a father up to this point, you guys. He wasn't a father yet. But the promise was that he would have his own son and that he would father many. As many stars as there was in the sky, and the grains of sand. That's a lot. So my big question is again, who is it that God says you are? Because Abraham held to this promise. He gave up trying to make it happen in his own way, right? We know that he did. We know he attempted it. But he finally was like, whatever, I'm just going to, I'm going to build on your promise, God. Verse 18, faith gave substance to hope when everything seemed hopeless. The words, so shall your seed be, conceived in him the faith of fatherhood. Abraham's faith would have been nullified if he were to take his own age and the deadness of Sarah's womb into account. His hundred-year-old body and Sarah's barren womb did not distract him in the least. His hundred-year-old body and Sarah's barren womb did not distract him. How many of you are distracted by what's surrounding you? Whew, we've got a spirit of distraction going on. We do. What is it that God has promised you, and are you holding fast to it? God has just been reminding me lately of some of the things that have transpired, and, and I know that it's because we're living in in John and Robin's parents' home, and, and, and so I'm living in the promise, right? Like when you enter into something, you're living underneath the weight of the promise that exists in that atmosphere. And so I'm constantly being hit with all of these things throughout history, throughout 31 years, of what it is that God has said concerning their dad. That he was promised 70, 70 years, 70 some years, 70 something years, 87, 87 years. To my knowledge, he's 66. Yeah. So therefore, I cannot be distracted by what's going on around me because that is not the evidence. The evidence is the promise. I don't care. If death comes knocking on the door, death can't be his savior. 
There is a promise. And see, we have to become audacious enough to begin to believe the things that God says. What would have happened if Abraham was like, whatever. This isn't happening. God, it has taken too many years. What would have happened to faith? That's what I want to know. If Abraham would have walked away from the promise, where would we be without faith? This is the faith that, that God was authoring. It started in Abraham that he would hold fast to what it was that God said would be true of him. And it started with one son that was given many years later. It took Sarah mocking God. And laughter, she did. She mocked him. She overheard their conversation when Jesus came rolling in like angel. That was Jesus. You know, the strangers that came to visit. Sarah made them a meal. She overheard their conversation out the kitchen window. (laughs) I'm old, God. She laughed. And God even one-upped that. Sarah, Lisa and I were doing a word study this morning while she was just standing in the doorway where I was obnoxiously searching for information. And because I had to know, it's very clear what Abraham's name means. But Sarah, what what did Sarah, Sarah, however you want to say her old name with the A-I, what did that mean? Well, it meant princess. Sarah also means princess. The names mean the same, but the A-H is what was important. Belonging to God. Which means that Sarah's womb has to come under the dominion of the Father. Everything within her now is under the dominion of the Father. It's fine to just be the princess, but wouldn't you rather be the princess that belongs to God? Wouldn't you rather be of God? Don't you want the A-H added to your name? I told Lisa, I was like, I'm adding an H to your name. You are of God. So she becomes the princess. She becomes a royalty of God. He brings her into his house. Don't you want to be brought into his house? Because that's where the promise exists. Do you know how many prophetic words I have I have written down in different places or just etched in my mind? I have years worth of prophetic words that are just kind of like floating around and I haven't seen a lot of them yet. But one just instantly popped into my mind and it was many years ago and the word was that that this the it was prophet and he says, "I see you baking bread." And you will serve up bread for many, and there is healing in your hands. Now, I haven't seen a whole lot of people healed. So does that mean that I should turn my back on that? No, what that means is he has brought me into his house, and he said, this is what is true of you. You will bake bread, Angie, and your hands will heal many. It's coming. You just wait.
coming. There's more to come. He leans. And that barren wombs would be healed because he's brought me into his house. See, it's not just a one-on-one encounter with him where I turn and I face him and I'm like, I am you. There's a uniqueness on it. There is a promise on your life. What is attached to your life because you have been brought into his house and he added the A-H to your name. What is he calling you in this season? We're too comfortable with our professional Christianity. When our main focus is whether or not somebody is acting the part or whether their language is cleaned up and, you know, they're doing all the right things, posting all the right things and believing all the right things, we're missing it. Reconciliation, the ministry of reconciliation is an invitation for us to steward the kingdom of heaven well. For us to turn and face Jesus, to see ourselves, so that we have eyes to see when people walk in to our space and we can identify him first. Yes? Can we do that? This is the invitation. It's what is ours as those who are brought into his house. Will you stand? Let's pray. Father, I just thank you. I thank you that you are breaking us open and we can hardly hold back anything. We can feel the pressure of the reservoir pressing up against the gates and we are ready to burst. I just thank you that you are releasing your kingdom wealth through us, that we are vessels that will go and do what it is that you've called us to do, that we are those who have been brought into your house that function in the ministry of reconciliation, that we have eyes to see, that we have ears to hear, and what comes out of our mouths lines up perfectly. Thank you for the promise over our lives. Thank you that you've called us by name. And I thank you for the faith that it's going to take to live audaciously before you, to be the response to the nations that are crying out for the desire of their heart. We get to be the response. Thank you for bold faith, Jesus. You have made us courageous. Amen.